This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. Today, our guest is Jed Emerson. Chief Impact Strategist for Impact Assets, a nonprofit organization that catalyzes investment capital for optimal social, environmental, and financial impact. Impact Assets provides educational resources to inform clients of the latest opportunities for socially conscious investing, offers the ability to co-invest across for-profit and nonprofit arenas, and provides a platform for clients and their wealth advisors to participate in impact investments, either through philanthropic or private asset basis. Jed is a graduate of Lewis and Clark College and has earned a master's in social work from the University of Denver and an MBA from St. Mary's College of California. He's also a senior fellow with the Center for Social Investment at Heidelberg University in Germany and a clinical professor at NYU Abu Dhabi. He's held faculty appointments at Harvard, Stanford, and Oxford University Business Schools, and has presented his work on impact investing through finance at the World Economic Forum and the Skull World Forum. He's the author of numerous articles and papers and has co-edited multiple books on sustainable investing. He was named one of North America's top 100 thought leaders in trustworthy business behavior in both 2012 and 2013 and was twice selected by the nonprofit Times as one of the 50 most influential people in this sector. In 2012, Jed won the Nautilus Gold Book Award, along with his colleague, Anthony Bug-Levine, for their wonderful book, Impact Investing. Jed is the creator of the concept of blended value, understood as a new framework for advancing a unified, holistic vision of value creation that transcends the old bifurcated view, imagining a conflict between for-profit and non-profit strategies. The idea is to overcome the legendary alleged tension between doing well and doing good. Jed, thank you so much for being with us today. I've been looking forward to this conversation. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So I'd like to begin by asking you to share a little of your formative journey in this work. I've learned from interviewing many social entrepreneurs that there's often an an aha moment where you have a fundamental insight that sort of alters the future of your career. So looking back over your journey, do you see one or more such moments in your own career that led to the work you do now and the impact that you're having now? Well, I think that uh, my background actually initially was in social work and specifically youth development. And I was the founding director of the Larkin Street Youth Center in San Francisco, uh, which serves homeless youth and and runaway teen prostitute kids. And I was fully committed to a career in nonprofits. And after about five years of, of running the Larkin Street Youth Center, though, I realized I was becoming increasingly disillusioned with traditional approaches to nonprofit management. And in particular, I felt that there was a disconnect between the quality of the work that we did on the street with kids and how money moved. And I, I really reached the conclusion that uh, you know, philanthropic capital and in many ways public capital uh, moves on the, the basis of politics, perception, and persuasion as opposed to performance. And I became more and more kind of, uh, again, disillusioned with, with that future and the prospect of working in that kind of a world. And um, so I decided I needed to, to find another route, if you will. And in the course of uh, a number of conversations as I was in the process of exiting uh, Larkin Street, where my program director became the executive director, so we had a very good kind of transition, I um, came in touch with a guy named George Roberts, who's the founding partner of Colbert Kravis Roberts, the private equity group. And George's challenge to me was how we could create and execute a strategy of bringing an investment mindset to his philanthropy and to use the, you know, the, the ideas and the practices and the acumen that had created value in his professional life uh, to how we were thinking about the management of his philanthropic capital. 
And so that started really uh, an 11-year journey of uh, being the founding director of the Roberts Enterprise Development Fund, or what's called REDF. And out of that experience, which was basically a, a venture philanthropy fund, where we took uh, philanthropic capital and invested in market rate companies that were owned by nonprofit organizations in order to employ formerly homeless people, I found myself having more and more conversations with for-profit investors who were mission-driven and were really grappling with the same set of challenges that we had at REDF, but from the for-profit investor, social investor perspective. And in the course of that, I really it started setting off a whole bunch of ideas and reflections around what is it that all this really ultimately is about. And that's how I ended up focusing on this concept of value. And then I think you had a, a, a pretty interesting tour inside uh, several other foundations. Am I right about that? Uh, at, at Hewlett Packard and, and even some others. Is that true? Were you a Hewlett Packard fellow? Yeah, that's point? right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, in 2000, I had a faculty appointment at Harvard Business School where I wrote uh, my first paper on blended value. And what I realized was that I really wanted to explore that concept in a variety of, of settings. And uh, in part, I wanted to do that through philanthropy. And in part, I wanted to do that through for-profit organizations. And so I began um, taking a series of appointments at uh, foundations. My first one was as a senior fellow at the Hewlett Foundation, where Paul Brest had just uh, begun his tenure as president. And later, I became a project manager at the Edna McConnell-Clark Foundation and was a part of the group that developed and started the execution on their capital aggregation strategy for scaling nonprofit organizations. Uh, and then I also spent about five years as a senior fellow with Generation uh, Foundation, which is the philanthropic arm of Generation Investment Management, which is a global public equities fund that was launched by David Blood and Al Gore. So I, I had a whole series of uh, kind of accidental appointments, I guess you'd say, uh, in both academia, philanthropy, and investing that kind of allowed me to, to explore these ideas and practice across those different platforms. Very, That's very important, I think. One of the things that I was thinking about looking at your background is that um, it's interesting to think about the way during that time frame that philanthropy itself became much more outcome focused so that even within traditional philanthropy i think in that time frame that you're entering you know uh, crossing the aisle as it were from you know being on the uh, social entrepreneur side where you're engaged in the work to being more on the investment side even traditional foundations would you agree were really evolving in their thinking about the importance of of impact um, even outside of what we would call impact investing. And I wonder how you see that trajectory, you know, going alongside the emergence of impact investing as a, as a phenomenon. Sure. Now, I think it's just been, I mean, it really has been fascinating to watch this development because I came into the, the philanthropic community uh, in around 1989. Uh, and I think it was 1990 that the book uh, called Outcome Funding uh, was published and set off a big discussion in the philanthropic community about this idea that maybe instead of being focused on the transaction of grant making, uh, people should be focused on what it is that grant making is actually supposed to be achieving and, and reorient kind of the conversation toward outcomes. And, um, and so as you watch the language uh, around that same time, a lot of the new money coming into philanthropy, you know, the first wave was in the late 80s, when you had the Wall Street financiers, you know, George Roberts and uh, uh, Paul Tudor Jones and other people who came in uh, to philanthropy, having made their money and with very clear ideas around wanting to apply more of an investor kind of frame to their philanthropy. And then you, that was followed in the 90s by a lot of the dot com money and the, the, the Bay Area billionaires, if you will. And they also brought this kind of sensibility to how they wanted to approach the work. And across the table from this kind of new wealth was really the professionally managed philanthropic actors, the people who were running uh, foundations where the, the founders may have uh, passed on or turned over 
the possibility for the grant making to these other folks. And I think in, in traditional philanthropy, it has been much more of a managerial approach to philanthropy. You know, we've got our 5%, you know, how do we make effective grants with that 5% payout? And I think increasingly when you have folks who actually uh, either created that capital or the active fiduciaries of inherited wealth, uh, there's a very different approach that they're able to take. And so the whole conversation uh, initially, quite frankly, was a little strained, uh, where a lot of the new wealth uh, looked at the established ways of doing philanthropy with a critical eye. And, you know, I mean, in some ways, there was a great deal of hubris in this, where you would have some of the dot-com folks who would say, look, you know, we just created this massive revolution in technology. It can't be that hard to have a revolution in education, right? And um, it was uh, a very, uh, you know, it was a very interesting set of discussions to be a part of because they were really calling the question and saying, look, you've been working on these issues for 20, 30, 50 years. You know, how's it going with poverty, right? And, um, you know, the fact of the matter is the philanthropic kind of bar was kind of low, I think, relative to what we would expect of returns on that capital. And so these conversations initially, I think, were, were difficult and challenging. But over time, a lot of traditional philanthropy has really internalized a lot of the practices and ideas that were being promoted by the new capital. Uh, and so the current discussion on outcomes the current issue of focusing on metrics and performance, uh, the whole idea that you would think about, you know, the capital structure of the nonprofit sector and, and what types of capital should be applied at what points in a nonprofit organization's development. Uh, those really are ideas that came up in the last 15 to 20 years that, that really were not part of the conversation before that. You know, in your book, Impact Investing, and I'd, I'd really like to encourage our listeners to go and get that book because it really is a wonderful, I think a very thoughtful treatment of not only all of all these issues, but of also the historical context. Um, there's a wonderful phrase right in the beginning where you talk about sort of entering a dark wood and discovering all the strange creatures there. And um, really, I think what you're pointing to is that with this uh, movement towards uh, outcome focus and then extending from that movement the idea of actually um, creating new business models for how this work is done, um, it, it really it presents a serious challenge to how we traditionally think of philanthropy. And so I'd like to ask you a direct, you know, question about that. And really the old way, I think, you know, that's still out there in some places. <clears throat> but as we said, you know, 15, 20 years, it's, 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 it's evolving. The old way is to think about you've got the charitable donation in one box, which is maybe about supporting something that is starving for resources or supporting people who are doing good work. And then you've got the for-profit investment, which is in another box, which is really about, hey, well, what's my return on investment? How do I make money? You're now talking about uh, new categories that blend this blend these these two activities. Um, so can you talk a little bit uh, about that for maybe who, someone who hasn't given as much thought as you have about it and explain a little bit, what do these new models look like? I mean, and, and perhaps even, I know this is a long question, but I know that at Impact uh, Assets, you have something called the Giving Fund, right? And maybe you could even use the Giving Fund as an example of how you're uh, breaking the model and showing us maybe creatures that we have not seen before. <laughs> well, of course, those are massive questions, so I'll try to be <laughs> very concise. Okay. Um, I think before we can talk about different organizational forms and before we can talk about the various investment vehicles people can use to move capital into support of those forms, we need to just kind of acknowledge, as you were saying, that we, we have largely functioned in a bifurcated world. The, the idea that the, the, the role of companies is to maximize financial performance and return for shareholder uh, for shareholders and the purpose of the nonprofit sector is to create social good. And, and I think that if you stay on either side of that divide, uh, you can actually run a full career track. You can be very successful as a nonprofit manager or as a business person. And at, and at the end of the day, you could be very successful, but uh, as uh, Albert Einstein is said to have said, uh, you know, seek not to be a person of success, but rather a person of value. And I think that 
ultimately, if you're a nonprofit uh, manager and you're serving, you know, thousands of people, that can be viewed as great success in the nonprofit sector. But the fact is, if you're not transforming the lives of thousands of people, you failed. Uh, you know, you have not really created real value. And in many ways, I think the business community is really recognizing that at the end of the day, a profit is really just a, a short-term measure of success. But if you really want to have a sustained presence in the markets, if you really want to be effective, uh, ultimately, as a business person, you have to, to focus more on the overall value that your firm is, seeks to create as opposed to the short-term profit that it tries to generate. And I think that what's happened in the last, especially the last 10 years, but it's been part of, a, I think, a whole tradition over time, has been a realization by people on both sides of that divide that regardless of how successful we may be in either side of that, uh, if we really want to affect poverty at a deep level, if we really want to address global climate change, uh, if we really want to uh, have the world and the markets that we seek, we are not going to be able to do that within a bifurcated frame. And so the, the first kind of step forward out of the bifurcation is simply to recognize that there's greater impact to be had by taking more of a holistic and an integrated approach that says that, in fact, you know, there's a continuum of capital and a variety of financial instruments that we can draw down and apply in support of our work. And in fact, there is a legitimate role that business can play in advancing social and environmental value and that nonprofits, uh, by not managing their economic worth, really leave value on the table. And that it's really if we can understand that there are a variety of ways that we can create organizations to maximize performance, uh, that performance is understood as a function of efficient kind of usage of financial capital with the pursuit and generation of sustained environmental and social impacts. And that's what performance is. Performance is not just, you know, being financially viable and profitable. It's really using finance to drive a whole host of kind of outcomes, if you will, and understanding the social context within those outcomes uh, process. And so I think that's the first kind of framing concept that we need to keep in mind. And, and if you move to that place, you almost become agnostic to uh, whatever, it, whether it's the, the financial tool or the, the organizational form. So it doesn't really matter if it's a nonprofit or a for-profit or a cooperative or a hybrid organization. Uh, it's simply a question of which form is best for advancing the model that you're trying to execute on. And you then also understand that, you know, in between the extreme of commercial capital and straight charitable giving, there's actually a whole host of you know financial instruments that we can draw upon and apply, and so that's kind of the you know the idea that we're kind of starting with. Sure. Now, having said that, do you want me to to talk a little bit about the organizational forms, or how, where would you like yeah. me to go? Yeah. Well, I think that I think that's that's very helpful, I and mean, I and I think that. I think a lot of people can get that idea that, you know, hey, for-profit businesses actually have, can have an important social impact and can be part of creating an ecosystem that sustains a community or they can, they can do damage, you know, as well. So we know that, that, that there, there's a, a light side and a dark side. And uh, by the same token, as you said, there can be um, the possibility for uh, organizations that are charitable to create value that is the same kind of value that for-profit businesses create. So you've got uh, both ends of the spectrum there that are observant. I think where this whole idea gets challenging is when you say, all right, now we've had this fundamental insight. And I think this is something that you do very well in the book. We, it's, we have a fundamental insight that these are, these categories don't necessarily make sense or perhaps blending them makes sense. And now we're going to go out and try some new forms of doing things that lead us to different and better places. And so what I'd really love to give listeners a chance to do, I think it's a hard question, I know, but to offer a few examples of what that looks like in practice, like what are the new forms that we're seeing that are emergent um, that, that uh, don't neatly fit into these uh, pre-existing categories? 
Well, I guess I'd say I'd say a couple of things. One is that the main idea here is that instead of kind of accidentally creating positive impacts, we're talking about managing organizations as a whole with the intentionality of creating impact. And so uh, from the the traditional for-profit side, you remember the phrase, you know, what's good for GM is good for America. Right. Um, you know, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about the fact that, you know, for-profit companies create jobs and, uh, you know, generate a tax base. We're talking about for-profits that are fundamentally mission-driven, that have on the one hand, you know, a vision around, you know, generating profits and positive kind of financial discipline uh, applied to their, you know, execution of their business plan, but that they're actually also doing more than that. So on a, you know, one example that I think everybody would, would know is Patagonia as a company that, you know, is very profitable, has done very well, but also has campaigns like the one they did last year, which encouraged their customers not to buy their jackets, right? <laughs> and basically, basically said, look, I mean, you know, you've already got a bunch of stuff, you know, like in your closet. So don't buy this jacket, you know, use the stuff you already have. And, you know, maybe you should think about going through your closet and donating the things that aren't as effective for your life and for what you're trying to do right now and what you need. And then maybe buy one of our, you know, products uh, as a part of like a revisitation of what it is that you really need as a, as a consumer. And I think that by challenging the consumption society, that's a very different way to go about selling clothes. And uh, and it's different from like the cause marketing stuff that we've seen in the past that says, you know, buy more of this and we'll donate, you know, a percentage. Um, and so that's more of the kind of rate pillage and philanthropy approach to business. Uh, what we're talking about are, you know, organizations uh, like Windows of the World, um, which is working to do uh, employee ownership of companies so that the equity that is built financially actually is equity in the pockets of the employees and creates you know not only financial equity but social justice equity at the same time that you're executing this business uh, strategy uh, you know we're we're talking about things like a startup in Bhutan called Mountain Hazelnut which instead of trying to come in and displace the traditional subsistence agriculture that folks have practiced for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years in Bhutan, uh, they're coming in and they're helping farmers uh, plant uh, hazelnut uh, plants in the perimeter of their uh, existing agricultural hectares in order to augment the income of these farmers and give them access to uh, a way to expand their economic opportunity. And they're doing that through sustainable agricultural practices that they're teaching the farmers at the same time. Um, and you know, in that case, they're also using uh, PDAs to track uh, the, the, the quality and the health of the hazelnut groves that they're planting and using you know, the best thinking and technology to improve yields and harvest but to do that in a way that is in alignment with, you know, the values of the Bhutanese farmers. So it's that type of a company that is out and involved in that type of work as well. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world. From the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions, Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with David Castro and Jed Emerson, Chief Impact Strategist for Impact Assets. 
You know, you you tell a story in the book which I think is um, illuminating uh, and perhaps would be a good focal point for teasing out some of the key principles um, here. And it's about uh, it's about a company that goes to India and creates uh, you know something called Dial One Two Nine Eight Ambulance Service. So the fundamental issue for our listeners is that you know Dial Nine One. Yeah, Dial Dial One Two Nine Eight Ambulance. You know, it's this company in India that you ah. write about. I don't know. I'm sure you remember this where um, in, in the United States, we think nothing. If somebody's sick, we call an ambulance in, in Mumbai. That service doesn't exist. And so you tell a story about these uh, social entrepreneurs that basically create a, an ambulance service in Mumbai using investors rather than just doing it in the traditional grant funding old old style you know and um i found that uh a good example um because it looked like what they were doing was instead of you know the traditional way of doing this is you go out to a foundation and you say hey we're trying to do this good thing please give us money uh, but what these guys did was say well here we have a business but our business is going to serve uh, part of the population that doesn't get served now with a service that doesn't exist now, and we're looking for investors. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that and, and models like that. It sounds like th- even the example you just gave was similar. Um, in Well, in there are. So that's a great example of the fact that that's a great example of the reality that if you had gone a traditional route, and you know, raise money from a foundation in order to establish an ambulance service, at the end of the grant period, the service would have concluded. And the reality is that I think increasingly we find social entrepreneurs who are recognizing that without margin, there's no mission. So if you're not able to you know, crack the code on a business model that can be sustainable on a financial basis, you will not over time be able to execute a strategy that can create sustained social value. And so this idea that they came up with was one that that allowed them to take investor dollars and use that to create and then execute a business model that allowed them to finance their social impact, if you will, uh, as a fundamental and integrated part of that business model. And so I think those are the types of uh, ventures that more and more people are looking to create. And, it, and it, again, it's interesting when you think about uh, a career track, because, you know, when I was a kid, if you wanted to do well, you went and got a master's in social work and you went into community work. And increasingly, I think people in their 20s are recognizing that they want to be able to pursue profit with purpose. Uh, the idea that you would spend your life working to create financial return and economic value and then turn around and spend the last part of your life kind of giving back, as it were, uh, just has less appeal for folks who are coming to the game uh, really wanting to engage in profit with purpose. And so I think that's really where a lot of these ideas get generated is by folks who are looking at the world, they look at challenges as opportunities to create a different way to to confront that challenge and address that need. And the lens that they use is not a nonprofit, for-profit lens. It's a lens of, you know, what's the organizational form that will be most effective for us to address this issue? And then within that form, you know, how can we think about a variety of ways to generate kind of revenue and impact back to us? Um, I think another good example is the uh, uh, education finance company of India, where they one of the issues in India is that you've got large areas that have been settled by very very poor folks that are not recognized as legal communities by the government, and so there are no schools in these communities at all. And yet, uh, what was uh, seen very clearly was that families were able to come up with you know ten dollars, twenty dollars a month to pay for profit uh, educators in these school areas, um, but because of the, the legal questions around you know, the schools themselves and because they weren't viewed as, uh, as traditional business ventures, uh, these same institutions weren't able to really access uh, capital to uh, hire more uh, teachers or to expand the, the schools that they were teaching in. 
And so um, the finance corporation came in and said, well, look, we can we know how to do this. We can basically make loans to these educational institutions in order to help them grow and expand. And we'll take perhaps greater risk than a traditional investor would. But we can see from the, the fact that these schools and the, the families that support the schools have been making payment uh, on the tuition for 5, 10, 20 years, that there's a track record that we can build a business model around. And so that's another example of, I think, not only, you know, ownership that's for profit, but driving social value, but investment opportunities you actually make a reasonable financial at the same time that you're using your capital to create real change. Yeah, that, that that's a very powerful example. And it, it seems like there's a couple of things going on here, and, and I'd like uh, maybe you to comment on this, um, and I'll ask a specific a question about it, but let me just sort of see if I can, I can articulate it. Uh, one thing that is clearly going on is that you have uh, a motive that's being introduced into the enterprise that is in addition to the for-profit motive. So you're basically saying, hey, a company can be organized for profit, but then it can have other uh, objectives which are uh, social and philanthropic in nature, and those can sit next to the financial objectives in harmony with the financial objectives, not intention. Um, and and then it seems like there is the potential for two things to happen. One One thing that could happen is that the business could be more sustainable if it's based on actually creating a business model that returns resources into the organization. And then the other one is, of course, that the idea that somebody could actually earn a return, an investor could earn a return um, as well. Uh, one of the things that I think is cool about your book is it also just spends really some time meditating on the environment for such businesses. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Um, I know you've done some really important thinking about, well, if we're going to be more open to these kinds of models, how do we need to change the ecosystem? And I'll just throw out one example, but I'm sure that you can uh, provide some more. One example that you write about is, of course, the B Corp, um, which is a new corporate structure and things like that in other countries that change um, – the infrastructure or the the regulatory environment in such a way that it's easier for people to do this. Could you talk about that? Well, you know, in some cases, what we're talking about is, I mean, people refer to this as the enabling environment. So, you know, how does the, the tax and regulatory and the policy frameworks within which entrepreneurs function affect their ability to innovate and to create these kind of organizational forms? And, you know, if you think about it, we, we do this all the time in traditional business where there's lobbyists who work hard to get certain tax considerations or regulations passed on behalf of the companies that they represent. And all we're saying is, I think, two things. One is, you know, remove the barriers that inhibit innovation uh, within society, within capital markets, within communities. And then use uh, what uh, structures you have to encourage kind of innovation and new capital flows to come into a space. So, you know, you referenced the B Corps. A lot of folks believe that it is the fiduciary obligation of the founders of companies when they take outside capital to pursue first and foremost financial return for those shareholders. And so uh, there's some debate, I think, around whether or not the law actually would punish, you know, an entrepreneur who doesn't place financial performance first. But what the B Corps legislation does is it says that you can actually become a new type of corporation that is responsible for returning value uh, to stakeholders and shareholders alike, and that you, in fact, have to take consideration of the broader context uh, the broader community, the various folks who are affected by your business, either, whether positively or negatively, in the course of your developing and executing your business strategy. And so it, it really provides uh, support for entrepreneurs and for investors who want to develop and execute a mission-driven for-profit uh, company. Uh, another example would be something like the, the social impact bond, where you really need to have at the, the uh, public sector level, 
a commitment to use public dollars to, in essence, reward private investors for taking on risk for social innovation, for, for funding new ideas around whether it's education or uh, prison uh, reentry or job training, uh, where you basically are offering the risk of the startup to the private sector investor. And over time, if that strategy is proven to be a success, the public sector will uh, return a percentage of the value that's created by that more effective intervention strategy uh, to the outside investors who kind of uh, took on the risk factor, if you will. Because I think for a lot of us, we think that the public sector funds are really precious and should be used for direct services and programs that really have proven themselves. And it's really the, the private sector, whether through philanthropic dollars or in this case, through independent investors who should carry the burden of the risk and the innovation and the experimentation. But if they're willing to do that, there should be some uh, upside and there's a, you know there's a, an opportunity to participate in that value creation over time as well. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There's really a, a terrific catch-22 in the public sector because on the one hand, people have, uh, I think, a deep awareness that a huge part of what the government does is very ineffective. But on the other hand, there's a culture which says that if you're experimenting or taking risks, that's entirely inappropriate. <laughs> and, and that seems to right. be, you know, really doomed to failure to have both of those things in your mind at the same time. But um, no, I, I think that's right. And if you look at the, the social innovation fund that was created, uh, I guess, probably four or five years ago now, it originally the original idea was that government would invest in new ideas and best thinking and all that kind of thing. And what happened over time is they realized that actually what they should be doing is looking for those places where innovation has been demonstrated to be successful and use the public funding to help leverage and scale that innovation as opposed to be the first in, first loss kind of money for that innovation. And so I think that it's a great example of kind of leveraging public dollars in a positive way against the private capital of philanthropy and of individual investors. So there's so much in your book, and, and there's not enough time for us to cover it all, but I do want to try to squeeze in one other area, which I think is uh, really, again, a valuable and very thoughtful part of what you have done, and that is your focus on measuring success. So, you know, in the for-profit world, obviously, we have well-developed metrics and reporting systems, and we, we know, if we can tell if a company, bring in the accountants, we can tell you if a company made a profit, we can, we can at least have some idea of how much a company's worth. Then you enter this uh, world of social benefit and social outcomes, and suddenly everything is very gray and fuzzy. And um, so you've done some thinking, I know, about um, emergent ways of coming to grips with that. And I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about what you see as being promising strategies for developing some, you know, shared sense of how to evaluate uh, and measure the social outcomes of, of, of work. Sure. Well, again, I think before we can really talk about that, we have to recognize the fact that the econometrics, the kind of fundamental numeracy that we use in business, uh, did not emerge fully formed. That basically it was right. after the Great, the Great Depression and World War II when we ended up seeing the creation of the Financial Accounting Standards Board, uh, the general accounting, uh, generally accepted accounting pr uh, practices. Uh, we basically had a period where accountants and business people and government folks came together and said, okay, how are we going to count what counts in business? And it's really only been uh, since the, the 50s that we really have seen that, you know, come to full force. And so we need to recognize that in the same way that traditional business metrics and accounting have evolved over time, the same is happening in our area. And sometimes that, you know, I hear people express a real frustration with the fact that, you know, nobody's kind of cracked the code on social value performance measurement. But I really think that we're in, you know, the early stages of that conversation. Um, when the EPA was created uh, in 1970, 
was really the first time that we as a country began to look at environmental performance in a serious way and talk about how do we assess, uh, you know, in, in that case, pollution and the, the environmental damage that many companies were creating at that period. And that set off a whole uh, series of innovations with regard to understanding environmental performance indices and how we can use that to track performance, not only of companies, but of capital as well. And then I think, uh, as we were talking about uh, in the early 90s, you saw this shift in orientation toward outcome uh, funding, which required that people be able to track outcomes on a social basis. And so I think it's really only been in the last 20 years that we've seen this renewed focus on that particular aspect of the question. So the fact that we may have another 20 years of exploration and kind of dialing in those metrics, I think is only appropriate. Um, now, having said that, we're really seeing an integration of practices uh, in the last five years that, that were not active before. And by that, I mean, you know, if you look at the movement around sustainability reporting at the corporate for-profit level, where companies over the last, you know, 10 to 15 years have really been, you know, working through the issues of how to assess their environmental and social value creation elements. Uh, and, and that has morphed up into what's called integrated reporting, where more and more companies are saying, look, we don't want to have a sustainability report over here in our financial statements over there. We want to have a more integrated way to assess performance and report on performance to our shareholders and our stakeholders. And I think that that's a real innovation that's coming forward. Uh, that is then complemented with what we're seeing in iris and gears which are the two uh, one is the taxonomy of indicators that impact investors and social entrepreneurs are using uh, gears speaks more to the standards that you can then use and apply based on having that common language around impact and what is impact and I think that you know the, the process that the B-Lab folks used and, and the Global Impact Investing Network uh, to create that metrics framework was pretty interesting because what they did is they looked at what are all the different reporting standards that are being used around the world, from the World Bank uh, to philanthropy uh, to OECD. I mean, they looked at all of the different development finance communities, and they basically pulled out what were the most common metrics being used in those different areas. And they, in essence, crowdsourced a reporting system by putting those metrics online and creating a public debate about which metrics mattered most uh, and how to think about different indices. So, for example, obviously job creation is a common kind of outcome that people point to uh, for impact, but there's a whole discussion to be had about the quality and nature of work and you know is a job uh, you know 10 hours a week or you know 80 hours a week is it uh, you know no benefits or benefits i mean there's a whole set of considerations and questions that come up in order to understand not just the, you know employment and job creation as a positive outcome but again the intentional nature of that outcome relative to advancing impact and so the work that iris and gears is doing has been really significant and is being really complemented by the evolution of metrics coming out of the more traditional corporate and finance communities as well. Ah, that's just, um, thank you, because I think that's uh, fascinating. I mean, first of all, there are so few people, I think, out there who've really scanned the field in that area. And so I think it's a major contribution to be able to talk intelligently about it and to be able to point also to the trends that that are promising. I mean, I think, I think one of the things that's interesting when you compare the uh, for-profit and the non-profit sector is that there is general consciousness that, you know, in the for-profit sector, uh, businesses go bankrupt, uh, things, things don't work, money gets lost, and that's okay. That's part of how the market functions, um, and that's part of learning, and that's part of how we build successful enterprises.
but it seems like in the in the uh, nonprofit sector we have this concept that uh, any kind of failure is bad; it should be avoided, and you know, and um, and uh, and it's like a shameful thing to have been in an organization that uh, didn't succeed. So part of I hope part of what emerges from people who really think about this is to tolerate um, and learn from experience, you know, uh, that people have um, in trying to do things in the same way that that the private markets do. I think that would be a very healthy um, development. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, sure. I mean, I think that when we have this conversation, I think a lot of folks who haven't really thought a lot about the nature of failure just think that it's kind of like, you just take a crapshoot and if it works, great. And if it doesn't, that's just the way it is. Whereas I think what we lose is the idea that in fact, we wanna have informed risk taking and we want to to really learn from what others have done in the past and apply the best thinking to our own innovations and experiments so that when things do go sideways, we're not simply repeating the mistakes of others uh, that have come before us. And I think, um, you know, this is really, you know, the best part of innovation is that we need to be bringing that knowledge forward. And I think that's why in the book, we try to really make the point that, while for a lot of people who haven't had this conversation, impact investing sounds very new, but in reality, impact investing in a whole host of ways has been with us for decades. And the only thing that's different today is that people now are connecting the dots and bringing these learnings together in a way that we just have not done in the past. And and that's really the power of what has been unleashed in this whole conversation about community and capital, is that it's no longer the social entrepreneurs versus the business people or the housing groups versus the sustainable ag people or this type of thing. It's all part of a grand parade of innovators and investors and risk takers and and kind of knowledge gatherers and it's it's all that together and more that basically is creating this momentum for impact jed we're coming to the end of our time together and i so i'd like to ask you um a question that's really targeted towards uh people who may be starting their journey in this in this arena you know emerging social entrepreneurs we know that in hindsight people who succeed in this uh, in this uh, arena, in hindsight, it looks like everything they did was a beautiful success. But the reality is that everybody's career has hard places and places of, uh, as we're talking about, failure and, and uh, substantial learning. And I wonder if you could share a little bit of wisdom um, with people, any advice that you would have for somebody who maybe is just coming out of school right now and trying to find out, find their place in um, this new blend of uh, doing good and doing well, what what words of wisdom do we have for them? (laughs) I have no words of wisdom. Um, (laughs) I think, you know, I got to tell you, I mean, I have moved through so many different uh, parts of this conversation in both the for-profit and the non-profit, uh, looking at public equity and private equity and philanthropy. I mean, there's been no logic uh, to how my career has unfolded. And I think that when I talk to a lot of folks who are starting out, there's almost a presumption of, uh, you know, of logic to some of this that, you know, I'm going to I'm going to go get my degree and then I'll do like three to five years in management consulting and then I'll join a private equity fund and then I'll go and start my own company. And I mean, it's just like, you know, you listen to the conversation sometimes and you just have to smile because life just doesn't work as according to plan. Um, and so I think that there's there's two things that I would offer. One is over time, really trying to get comfortable with the reality that where you are is where you're meant to be at that point in time. <laughs> and to really be fully present in the experiences that you're having and, and not try to rush your, you know, to the next achievement, to the next job, to the next opportunity. Uh, but to really be deeply centered with where you are and what you have the possibility to offer and learn in that place. Um, so I think that's one piece. The other piece actually comes out of a piece of research that I've been working on with colleagues at Insight and at Duke University that we're calling Impact Investing 2.0. And what we did is we we looked at, we started with about 400 funds from around the world. We We finally honed in on 12 of the highest performing funds 
and then did a series of very deep 360-degree case study analyses of those funds in order to find out, like, what are the elements of success? And one of the themes that has come out from that research has been the realization that the leadership of the most successful funds has come from individuals who are what we call multilingual leaders. And these are people who have spent their career moving across the different divides and, you know, maybe starting at Goldman Sachs for three to five years and then moving over to a development finance banking institution and then going and launching their own fund. And they, they basically are people who can speak across the divide, if you will. And so I think that what's been fascinating to watch in that research is a lot of the rhetoric in the past, whatever, 10 years in impact investing has said, we need more people who know how to do deals. We need people who've run money. You know, we need the business people to come and show us how to really do this. And what we found is actually that's not correct, that right. the most successful funds have been those that have been led by people with both and track records as opposed to either or careers. And so I think that, you know, for people who are starting the journey, you can start almost anywhere and be a success. And the trick is to be open to growth and to learning and to crossing that divide consistently, because increasingly we're able to find opportunities that actually are dead in the center. And to be the most successful entrepreneur, to be the best investor, you have to understand that that holistic, integrated way of thinking, investing, and pursuing impact. Ah, that's a terrific insight, I think, and uh, because I think you're right. I think a lot of people imagine that, that it's going to necessarily have some logic and it has to be planned out, and it turns out that a diversity of experiences and being open to what's happening to you at that moment is a very key element of success. So, um, well, for those who would like to support your work, and I would like to encourage people to do that and to go out and get your book, um, the best place, obviously, your book is available on Amazon.com, and um, and also we could send listeners to ImpactAssets.org. I have that right? Yes, and then uh, also, actually, Better World Books uh, gives books away in the third world uh, in exchange for people buying books in the first world. So I think that would be a, a good alternative to Amazon as well. Great. Better World Books. We'll put these links up on the link to the podcast. And then also you have, I would like to direct listeners for people interested in Blended Value. There's a terrific website, blendedvalue.org, um, that has a lot of uh, uh, papers and videos and some of your key ideas there. So, um, Jed, thank you so much for your creative leadership in this field. And, and thank you so much for joining us today. I hope we can catch up with you again in the future. It's, it's, been, a, it's been fascinating and a real pleasure to speak with you. David, it's really been my pleasure. Thanks so much for the invitation. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.